I'm sure that, that some, you've heard some preacher or maybe some Bible class teacher, maybe you've heard me say it uh, before, well, the church is not, is not the building. The church is not the house. And, and I've, heard, I've heard people say, well, well the church is, we're, we're meeting in the church house. Maybe you've heard that phrase. But still, the church is not a building per se. No, it is the people. It is the redeemed. It is the justified. It is the saved. It is the group of people who have come out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is the church. It's not the house. But this morning, I'm going to say that the church is the house. And we, more importantly than the church is the house, we are vessels in that house. Vessels of various kinds. Our text comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, useful to the master, made holy, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a good heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The picture of the metaphor in our text is that Christians are vessels in a house with a specific purpose. Now, my translation uses the word articles. The NIV used the word articles, but vessels is, is perhaps a better translation there. Dishes, you might say, in a house. But, but really, in what's he talking about the house for just a second, and then we'll zero in on what about the vessels. In other parts of Scripture, the house of God, the church of God, is called the house of God. And sometimes the connotation there is that, well, we are a family. He is our father. Jesus is our big brother. And we have many brothers and sisters. But then there are other connotations where, where the house of God is not so much about the family dynamic and that relationship. It's about the temple. The house of God is the temple of God where God dwells and where we worship God and where we come close to him and, and offer our sacrifices of praise as we have done this morning. And maybe both of those connotations are coming into our present text. I'm not totally sure, because really more, the more major emphasis is not so much on the house, but on the vessels in that house. And what about those vessels? Combine that, if you will, with our storyline for this sermon series. We're coming out of 2 Timothy, and in chapter 1, verse 6, he said to Timothy, you fan into flame the gift of God, which was given you or is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame. 
Ignite the fire again. Let it burn strongly in you. Realign your your life as it should be with everything that God intends for you to be and to do in the city of Ephesus. Stoke the coals and be everything that you should be. And in this text, he says, as those vessels of God, reignite the fire as the vessels of God for noble purposes in the house of God. And so I see in our text three ways in which he tells us to ignite the fire. He tells us to ignite the fire of purity. He tells us to ignite the fire of purpose. He tells us to ignite the fire of people. Now, I get a little after preachers who always use, you know, the same letter all the time, you know, that alliteration stuff. But in this case, I think it worked, and, and it fits the text. When it doesn't fit the text, I don't like to use it. But I think it fits the text here. So refer back to verses 21 and 22 as he talks about ignite the fire of purity in us. He says, listen, I need you to look at your life and make sure that it's pure. I need you to ignite the fire of purity. Now, now for just a second, as he says that to Timothy, I have wondered, so Timothy, are, are you not on fire for the Lord? Is that what he's saying in this text? Is that what he's saying in this book? Have, have you lost, has your fire gone out? And I don't think that's the case. But he is facing in the city of Ephesus significant difficulties. He's facing some opposition from within the body and from without the body. He's in a culture that is quite, uh, quite nasty in its background. And a lot of those people have come out of that, and maybe not all of them have lost all of that background. And, and so ministry in Ephesus is a, is a, a task. He's, he's not a brand new Christian, but he's a younger man, and that could be discouraging for him. And I've, I've wondered if Paul is just saying, you haven't lost your fire, but let's just make sure we stoke the coals. Let's just make sure you stay afire. And before we go to the exact text here, could we not put ourselves in that situation too? Do we not live in circumstances that could... Put a little water on your fire. Somebody might be trying to extinguish your fire a little bit. You might be a little bit distracted. You might have a lot of things going on, and and the fire is not as hot as it should be. And so let's take the exhortations that he gives Timothy here and obviously apply them to our lives as well. Well, ignite the fire of purity. What are you going to say here? Well, he says two things. He says, flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He says, first of all, flee. That's a strong word. He says, you run for your life. When you see something coming that you recognize as evil, you cross over on the other side of the street. You don't pass by that. You don't see how close you can get to the fire. You don't see how close you can get to the edge or the precipice of evil and say, I can get that close and not get burned. I'm okay. I'm pretty tough. I'm pretty strong. No. He says, you flee from the evil desires of youth. And and as he says that, I know he has said that to Timothy once before. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says, but you, old man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So he said it once before in the first letter. Now he says it again. 
And there he said, you're a man of God. That's the old prophetic language there. You're like a prophet of old, standing in a, an evil culture. You have to, to run away from the bad stuff and pursue the good stuff. I guess I think immediately when I think of flee, I think of the Joseph story. I think of Joseph being in the house of Potiphar and being tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he didn't stand around, did he? He didn't have a conversation. He didn't even have a Bible study with her. He ran. He knew to run away from that. And he did. Recently, I was watching some, some videos from the World Trade 9-11 Tower incident. And I was watching as people began to see that thing fall. They didn't run toward the smoke on that, on that time, at that point. They ran as fast and as quickly away from that danger as they could. They saw the danger and they ran. And the same should be true of us. With the same intensity and with the same fear of the evil desires of our world and our culture, we too need to flee. It needs to be a specific decision. It needs to be something we do every day. It needs to be something we sense. Oh, is that something we should be fleeing? Otherwise, we won't even run if we don't recognize it as that which, from which we should flee. And there are aspects of our culture that are tempting to us. We have to admit that. For different ones of us, it is different things. It might be sensuality. It might be power. It might be wealth. It might be prestige. It might be a hundred other enticements that are specifically part of your world that entice you. And surely by this point in our, our lives, as I look out here, most of us have been Christians for some time. And we identify with the Hebrew writer who says, you need to stay away from the sin that so easily entangles you. That which you know has a grip on you. That which you know is tempting to you in a special way or in a particular way. We know our weaknesses. We know our vulnerabilities. And so he says, you get away from those places. You get away from those people. You get away from those circumstances where temptations have the strongest pull on you. Run away, not run toward. Run away, don't linger. It's the difference between people fleeing toward a tornado and people headed toward a tornado. I'm kind of giggling because yesterday I saw a video on TV, tornadoes in the, in the southern part of our nation. Those, those are not funny. But the video is of two people in a car. Of course, they're males. Women wouldn't do this. But they're going down the road, and they are, they are saying, there's a tornado. It's right there. It's about to cross the road. They're not braking. They're not slowing down. They're not making any U-turns. They're headed right into that thing. And, they, and I don't think they were storm chasers. I don't understand those people anyway, okay? We're supposed to run. They weren't running. We are to flee those things. But he says we are to pursue righteousness and the other characteristics. This word pursue is interesting because it's always been a fascination of me that this word is also translated persecute. A number of places in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? That's the intensity of that word. It's not, well, you know, when you get around to it, you know, you could, you could try this thing out. No, he says, get after it. Like somebody would try to persecute you, you get after the good stuff. 
You pursue it. You go after it. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's strenuous. And it is perpetual motion in the right direction. But perpetual motion toward what? Those characteristics I mentioned, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, what are those? That's the character of Jesus. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what we're about anyway, isn't it? We've been transformed into the likeness of Christ in ever-increasing glory, Paul will tell the Corinthians. That's our journey. That's what we're pursuing. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that pursuit in our lives, is it just a serendipity? Is it just a sideshow for us? Is it just an extra? Is it just something that's an occasional thought in our life? Or is that front and center? Is that at the heart of our pursuits, regardless of what we do in the secular world or in the educational world or in our social world? Is it, is it front and center on our minds that that's what that's about? The point of our text is that we can't be a vessel of gold or silver that is, pure, that is not pure and holy. If we're going to be a vessel of gold and silver, which, which makes it through the difficult times because it's gold and silver, not wood and clay, then we'll have to know that we must not embrace, flirt with, and invite into our lives the desires of the flesh that so easily entangle us. Gold and silver, as I said, are purified by fire. But wood and clay are mashed, changed under the pressures of life and the fires of life, aren't they? That's why he makes that difference. And those are not the purposes of God for us. So light the fire of greater purity in yours and my life. Purge the wet wood that's in your life, as some people have said. The opposite of that would be what Paul says, or in similar language, don't quench the spirit. Don't put out the fire of the Spirit because the Spirit's put there to help you transform into the likeness of Jesus, to partner with you in becoming a pure person. Ignite the flame of purity. But then the second thing he says in verse 23, ignite the fire of purpose. He says, don't have anything to do with stupid and foolish arguments because you know they they produce nothing but quarrels. And the, and the servant of God must not quarrel. I wonder if, if Timothy had a little bit of a difficulty with this just because of who he is and maybe his character. I mean, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he has already warned Timothy about this. He says there are false teachers there and you're going to have to confront them. But there's some other things going on there that, that maybe are not so much false doctrine, but you don't need to get tied up in those. You don't need to get tied up in the myths and genealogy discussions. He says, you don't need to get tied up in those because those promote controversies and they don't build faith. Was Timothy tempted to get involved in that kind of thing? He says it again in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This book, just a few verses above this, so he doesn't expand it on in our verse. He says, you are quarreling about words. Stay away from quarreling about words. They are of no value. They bring about nothing good. Don't listen to those. Stay away from them. Stay away from godless chatter because that makes people only more and more ungodly. So in this text, he says, you stay away from stuff that doesn't really matter. 
If you're for noble purposes, you don't need to be in in involved in that discussion. Stay focused on the right things and the main things. I can hear my instructors telling me 50 years ago in the Sunset School of Preaching, you make sure and keep the main thing the main thing. You make sure and keep the main thing the main thing. And I don't think that was just an exhortation for preachers. When I think about, when I think about getting distracted and off base on things, I think, about, I think about the Roman church. I'm teaching that right now in the school, so especially I'm thinking about it. Great church. Paul says about them, your faith is known around the world. About your faith, about your evangelism, about your, about your perseverance. Your, your, your faith is known around the world. The churches know you. But that's not what's happening with them right now. In chapter 14, they're arguing about food. Can I eat this dish or can I eat that piece of meat? They're arguing about days. Can I celebrate this feast or that feast? They're not just arguing about it. They're condemning each other if, if they disagree with one another. That's how serious it got. And Paul says in chapter 14, verse, 11, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is a matter of righteousness, peace, and justice in the Holy Spirit. He's telling them the same thing that I just said a minute ago. You're not keeping the main thing the main thing. And you know what it's doing to you? He says your divisive spirit is threatening the very purpose of God. He'll say in chapter 15, he'll quote a number of Old Testament texts which prophesied the eternal purpose of God of bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body. And he says, your divisiveness jeopardizes my purposes in your city. And what do you think that will do to the rest of the people around the world, the other churches who are looking to you to lead the way, and they're hearing you're, you're having divisive spirit. You're not getting along. You're jeopardizing the eternal purposes of God. How dare you do that? How dare you do that? So, what is the main thing? Every now and then, in a sermon, in a Bible class, we need to hear the exact things. What are the main things? I think our job as Christians, our, our pursuit ought to be this, that we stay on target with the eternal purposes of God. That we are to partner with Him in His eternal purposes. And His eternal purposes are one, two, and three. My students know this. God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2. He, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our pursuit, our purpose, ought to be to partner with Him in bringing about that in the lives of people around us. But secondly, he wants the people who are saved to become like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might become the first among many brethren. His predestined determination for those of you who of your own free will choice would choose to be saved is this. The only thing left for you until you die is that you become more like Jesus. Is that really your purpose? Was that in your mind as you came in the door to say, hey, I need something else to help me become like Jesus? Third eternal purpose is that we glorify Him because He wants to be glorified. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, He'll say four times in different ways, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about some stuff. And he says, in essence, to God be the glory three times. To God be the glory three times. I get the idea that God's, and that passage is talking about the eternal purpose of God. He says, God be the glory is the ultimate aim of God and his eternal purposes. That has to be my part in joining him in that becoming a part of my life. Now, we have those reminders all the time. You're getting a reminder right now. Every time we come together in an assembly on Sunday morning and we partake of the Lord's Supper or maybe we encourage one another or we go to Bible classes or our Bible reading or even the banners on our wall in the auditorium, kindness, strength, and purpose. What does that remind us of? The purposes for which we exist. So Paul says to Timothy and he says to us, reignite, ignite the fire of purpose, make sure that whatever you do and wherever you are in your life and your family and your, your job or whatever, that you understand that your ultimate purpose is to be a good partner with God in His eternal purposes. But then finally, he says, I need you to ignite the fire of people. Of people. He talked about gold and silver vessels, but then he talked about vessels of wood and clay. And, and, and he's saying that in, in the body of Christ, people are at different parts of their journey, their faith journey. Not all are at the top, doing fine, wonderful, not having any struggles. There are plenty of people that are struggling. There are plenty of people that are weak. There are some that are, that are even wavering whether they want to be in the body anymore. There's some that are creating some problems. All kinds of people in the body to which uh, he addresses himself here in Ephesus. Now, let me just put forth a disclaimer here for just a second. As I read this the first time again, I wondered, well, why is he not telling Timothy to disfellowship some of these people? Because there are places in Scripture where there are times to disfellowship somebody who is that opposed or who is affecting the body so negatively that they must be dealt with. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance. He doesn't say that in this particular case. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in, in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and tares. The wheat is planted and, and tares, weeds get spread through those, those wheat fields as well. And he says, don't, don't go picking those weeds out yet. That will be taking a, a place at the end of time. I'll sort that out at the end, Jesus is saying. There are cases where... We're going to deal with all kinds of people in the body of Christ. Not all of them are, are really strongly on their way to where we need to be taking them or where they should be wanting to go. But how should we be treating them? How should we deal with them? He says, you need to be kind. You need to be gentle. Those are two different words in the Greek, but they're strong words. Uh, what happens if you're, if you're arrogant? What happens if you... Blow up against them. What happens if you put them down with all kinds of words? Where does that send them? Does that send them closer to where they need to be? Or does that send them further away? So even when they're pushing back against Timothy, even when they're saying some things to him that maybe aren't very kind, he needs to be careful what he says. You think the new preacher here? You think Monty for the last... 
How long you been here? 50 years, Monty? Same, same, I shouldn't say that. We've been friends a long time. But you think a preacher has to deal with people from time to time that are not very kind? Not heading in the right direction? Sometimes we won't see that. He has to be careful. He has to be kind and gentle. So they didn't push him farther away. Now, if there's a, if there's a time to, to confront, of course. But Paul talks about kindness. A soft answer turns away wrath. Give them space. Give them time. And secondly, give them teaching. Instruct them with the word. Be able to teach. It's the word of God that builds faith. Last time I checked Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he's not talking about share your best common sense, because sometimes that's not very biblical, honestly. Share the Word of God. It's the Word of God that builds faith in people. Bring them back to the principles of God's Word. Not my authority, not your authority, but the Word of God. And then third, he says, trust God. Trust God to work in their lives. Pray that God will Grant them repentance that they will be driven back to the truths of God's Word. So kindness, instruct with the Word, and trust God to work in their lives. Is that not the the noble person purpose of a Christian? To be focused on people. People. That's what the church is, isn't it? People. And so as we think about what we give our time to and our energies to, I hope that we start looking at the people that God has placed around us. It might be our family. It might be workmates. It might be neighbors. But particularly in the body of Christ, who is it that's around us? Who is it that that we should be particularly intent on spending time with and helping them move along in the right direction? And sometimes... They're not heading the right direction. All of us have friends. Some may have even left the faith by this point. But some are teeter-tottering. And we need to be them. We need to be bold, but we need to be kind, and we need to be helpful to them. We must be attentive enough to pray for them, to be bold enough in approaching them in their weakness, and not be afraid to engage them. We must turn them to the principles and the truths of God's Word not just to our good old common sense. And we must do it gently and kindly. Sometimes we can get discouraged by what people do to us and how irritating they are at times. I can admit to that. But we have to stay engaged so that we can help them move in the right direction. Reinvent, reignite the fire of people in your life. Reignite the fire of purity. Reignite the fire of purpose. Reignite the fire of people. And then we will ensure that we are indeed vessels for noble purposes in the body of Christ. If you need to respond today to the Lord's invitation because you're not a Christian, or maybe because you need our prayers, would you do that please while we stand and sing?